Good morning. Whether you are here in the room with us in person on the Granger campus or you are watching online, thank you for joining us for church today. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 22. And as we dive into the Word this morning, I just want to kind of do a reorientation. You remember those first days of school, the first day of the school year, maybe you're in a new school or you're returning to school after summer vacation, and there was this orientation that would actually kind of set some direction. It's like, this is the reason we're doing this. I just feel the need to do a little bit of that here at the beginning of the message. I want you to understand what is happening right now. The purpose of what is happening right now is the magnification of the person and the lordship of of Jesus Christ. We do that many times through worship, through song, through prayer, through scripture reading. We use all available means to do that. We've got this nice platform up here and we've got a sound system and we got these cool lights. It's all for the purpose of the magnification of Jesus Christ. And then when we transition to this point, when I come and start with those three words, open your Bible, that's called preaching. Did you know that? That's what I'm doing up here is preaching. Now, the end game of all good Bible preaching is worship. You said that that's what we did at the beginning. Yeah, it's a cyclical thing. I'm just fueling you for worshiping throughout the week. If I do my job right, which is preaching, and you do your job right, which is listening to the preaching, we know the Holy Spirit's going to do His job right it's going to invoke worship in your individual heart. No one can worship for you. If you do not have a flame of worship ignited in your heart, the seat you are sitting in will have no worship. No one can worship for you. So I say all that to say, as we open up the scripture today, if I do my job right, you do your job right, Holy Spirit does his job right, there's going to be a deep overwhelming emotional sense of sadness at what we're about to read and a deep overwhelming sense of joy at what Jesus has done in my place. So that's where we're going in the scripture here today. Now, let me just say this. Today, we are going to look at the greatest act of injustice in all of human history. Uh, there's been a lot of reaction to some perceived injustice in our culture, and so that is good and right. Uh, it's amazing how God is hardwired into the human heart, even if they don't acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we perceive injustice, we erupt in anger, especially when that injustice is coming toward us. There's also something so broken in the human heart that tends to make us blind toward any injustice that we would do toward someone else. And yet what we're about to see is the injustice that was done to Jesus Christ as he stood on trial. Is there anybody like me that gets those little notices in the mail that tells you you have to show up for jury duty? How many of you have ever gotten one of those? Have you ever gotten one of those? How many of you try your best to figure out a way to get out of that? Am I the only one that tries to figure out how to wiggle out of that responsibility as a good citizen's right? Well, listen, today we are going to turn this room into a courtroom. You are going to be put in the jury box, and before we're done, you are going to have to give a verdict. Jesus is on trial for two quote-unquote crimes. Accusation number one, 
is that Jesus has claimed to be the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, promised from the Old Testament Scriptures, the only one who could come and save mankind from sin and put them in right relationship of God. That's the first accusation. The second accusation is that Jesus has claimed to be king, that he is the rightful ruler of the universe and demands the surrender of all other kings and all other kingdoms to his authority and lordship. Those are the two crimes that Jesus has been accused of. You're in the jury box. We are going to hear testimony today from a man named Luke who has written for us an orderly account of the crimes of Jesus Christ. And he's going to call three witnesses. He's going to call First of all, a brutal religious system. Secondly, he's going to call as a witness a clueless king. And thirdly, he's going to call a convicted criminal to testify. And before we're done, you have to give a verdict. And let me tell you, there's one thing different about this trial than any other trial. Your verdict will have absolutely no impact on the person and the lordship of Jesus Christ. But your verdict will impact you for eternity. What will be your verdict as we look at the trial of Jesus Christ? Let's begin reading here. First of all, let's look at Jesus on trial before brutal religion, beginning in verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Let me give you a little context of what has happened. In the story here, we know that Judas, one of the followers of Jesus, has betrayed him, and he has taken a bribe from the religious police. A mob has come, arrested Jesus, and they have now drug him in front of this mob for his trial. The disciples have scattered, and we pick up the story here, they begin to beat him. And then in verse 64, it says, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Do you see the question that they asked? They blindfolded him and then they wanted to play games with him. Tell us if you're a prophet, you know all things, you're omniscient. Tell us who, who struck you, who beat you, whose fist just made impact with your face. And Jesus was silent. Do you understand that if Jesus had answered their question, it would have taken a very long time? Because Jesus would have had to have named Trent Griffith and Wes Ward and Mark and Karen Potton and every other sinner who has ever sinned against the holiness of God because what was happening at this point is Jesus was beginning to pay the penalty for the sin of all who would believe. Every time a bruise was laid on his body, every time a, 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 a drop of blood was spilled from his body, it was Jesus paying a substitutionary penalty for sin. Up until this point, Jesus had lived a perfect life. It was his substitutionary life. Jesus lived the life I could never live. He never sinned. 
He never did anything wrong. He perfectly honored his father in every way. Jesus performed my perfection with his life. But at this point in the story, a hinge turns, and Jesus begins to pay the penalty for the sin of all who would believe. And so every time he was brutalized, he was brutalized in my place. And that ought to bring an intense sadness to my soul to know that my actions caused bruises on Jesus' body. Everything in the Bible that is surrounding the arrest, the brutality, and the death of Jesus should have happened to me. And for that reason, it brings a sobriety, it brings a heartache, it brings a pain, and yet it also brings great joy and thankfulness knowing that Jesus would do all that I'm about to read as a substitute in my place. Look at verse 66. When day came, all right, now that's a time signature, it's a time stamp on the scripture, so understands what's, what's happened. Jesus has been awake all night long. He's been arrested in the middle of the night after praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This mob has taken him into custody. They've dragged him to the high priest Annas' house and Caiaphas. He's already had two trials, and now the sun comes up. And the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've not believed up until this point. You've had plenty of opportunity to believe. In other words, you've already made up your minds about who I am. Therefore, there's no point in answering you. And Jesus says in verse 69, something that's going to reverse Uh, the scene here, verse 69, but from now on, this is Jesus speaking, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. At this particular moment, moment, Jesus has absolute unlimited power to do anything he wants to do with this angry mob. Do you know what he does? He chooses to relinquish his power, and they begin to exercise theirs. But Jesus wants them to remember, one day they will be on trial in front of him. He will be the judge. They will be called into account for everything that they are about to do and say. As a matter of fact, in verse 70, so they said, are you the son of man then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And that two-word phrase was a declaration that Jesus was the embodiment of God. He's the creator, the great I am, the beginning and the end. And Jesus in human form, he was 100% God, he was 100% the I am, and he was the 100% man standing in my place. And then in verse 70, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his own lips. Let me tell you about this group that surrounded Jesus. It's the group known as the Sanhedrin. Now, you and I in the United States, we're familiar with the Supreme Court, these nine Supreme Court justices that have lifetime appointments, and and we know how it works here in America, right? If there's um, 
if, if there's a case in a lower court and that gets appealed, it goes to a higher court, and finally it ends up in the Supreme Court if that case is taken. The Sanhedrin worked very much the same way. Each community had its own lower court, and if something was appealed to the Sanhedrin, then they had a big formal court. The Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, was designed to prevent the guilty, to prevent the innocent from being proven guilty. But in this particular trial of Jesus, the complete opposite was done. The Sanhedrin met specifically so that the innocent could be declared guilty. The entire trial was illegal. The 70 men came together and violated their own laws in order to convict Jesus who had not violated any laws. Let me tell you about some of the things that were illegal. First of all, a trial should not, would would not have been legal if it was at night. They've already had begun this trial in the middle of the night. Secondly, a trial must take place in their courtroom. This one took place um, at the house of the high priest. That's illegal. Thirdly, a trial cannot be initiated by the Sanhedrin. In other words, it had to be started at a lower uh, court, and it had to work its way up the system. And so they had no witnesses, they had no evidence, and they had no crime. The whole thing was illegal. A trial couldn't be initiated on the eve of a feast, and yet this was initiated on the eve of the Passover. Uh, every capital offense that was tried in this court um, required three days from the conviction to the execution. And we're going to find out that within six hours of Jesus' uh, ex uh, sentencing, he was on the cross in my place. And so the whole thing is illegal. This was the urgency of this brutal religious system that felt threatened by the grace and the love of, who had, of someone who had not committed a crime. In verse 70 is interesting there. He says, you say that I am. The question was, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, you say that I am. I feel like somebody should have stepped in and read the Miranda rights there to the Sanhedrin. How many of you ever had Miranda rights uh, read? It's probably not a good question to ask in church, but um, if you've ever been in a criminal uh, justice situation, you know there's, there's a thing where you, you, you have to be read your rights. You know the rights? You, you remember this? Um, anything you say can and will be used against you you have the right to remain silent. At some point, somebody should have said that to Sanhedrin because Jesus is recording their statement. Oh, you said I was the Christ and yet you're going to kill me anyway. I'm just going to record that for future reference because one day you're going to be on trial. I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It's not going to go well for you unless you repent. Now, do you understand what's happening here? Not only is Jesus on trial, everybody in this room is on trial. Because as we read this, we have to make an individual verdict about what we believe about Jesus. Here is the presenting question. Here is the claim that Jesus makes. I am the Christ. I'm the Son of God. I'm the only one who can save you from sin. You'll never be good enough. Your religious system won't get you to heaven. You cannot try hard enough. You cannot do good enough. You can't be nice enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't sing songs loud enough. You can't give enough money to ever impress God so that it would cause Him to excuse your sinful behavior. And yet that is what this brutal religious system 
was built to deceive people was true. So you've got a choice to make. Will I trust this brutal religious system that beats me up? Some of you have been really beat up. How many of you have been beat up by a brutal religious system? You've gone to church, somebody told you to try harder, do better, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, but they never offered any grace about that. They just kind of beat you into the ground. And so understand that all of us at times has a bent toward a religious system that says, if I try hard enough, I don't need Jesus. I don't need grace. I'm good enough. The majority of people in the world today will never get to the place where they will acknowledge, I can't be good enough. I need a substitute righteousness outside of me. So we've all got a decision to make. We have to decide, is Jesus the Christ? But it goes deeper than that. Is he your Christ? Is he your God. And if he is, that has massive implications on the way that I live my life. You know what that means? If Jesus is God, I can't be. I, if I, you say, well, I don't think I'm God. Well, then why do you expect everybody to bow down and worship every time you offer an opinion? Why do you try to control everybody else? That, that's, that's a position reserved only for God. So if you truly believe Jesus is God, you'll stop acting like God. Now, that doesn't mean you're not to be godly. You understand what I'm saying here, right? There is a way to embrace humility where your actions actually are godly without trying to exercise sovereign control over everyone else. What is your verdict? If your verdict is Jesus is God, then you'll stop abusing your power to try to control other people. Secondly, let's look at Jesus on trial here before a clueless king. His name is Pilate. Go into chapter 23, follow with me, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Now understand something about Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor, and he's essentially a middleman between the Jewish people that were being occupied by Rome in their territory, he's a middleman between them and Caesar who lived back in Rome. So you had these tiers of government. You had Caesar, you had Herod, you had Pilate, and Pilate was just kind of chief of police there. His job was just to keep the peace. Keep these Jews from rioting and overthrowing the local occupation. And so Pilate was a pacifist. He tried really hard not to incite riots. And, and we know yet in history, three different times, the, the Jews would riot against some unjust action that Pilate had instituted. So here they are. They bring Jesus before Pilate. The Jews hated Pilate. But they needed Pilate because they didn't have power to execute Jesus. So they bring him before Pilate. And in verse 2 it says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Which was an absolute lie. You remember they, they brought uh, the question before Jesus, What should we do with um, our money, should we pay tribute to Caesar? And Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Give to God the things that are God. So they're lying about what he actually said there. And then it says, he's saying that he himself is Christ, a, a king. Now, now, Pilate could care less whether or not he can claim to be a, the Christ. But if he claimed to be king, that was an assault on his authority. 
So verse 3 says, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, you have said so. Verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no fault. I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, telling Pilate that Jesus is a revolutionary is the only way they could get Pilate to react to Jesus. And so they present him as someone that is a threat to Pilate's kingdom. And the story continues here in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the, the, the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he longed to desire, he, he, he longed desired to see him. Because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod, the man above Pilate, wanted to see Jesus. He'd heard about Jesus' fame. It was like he, he wanted a show. He wanted, to, he wanted Jesus to entertain him. It's like this was like Jerusalem's got talent, and maybe Jesus could come out and do something, and he could get the golden buzzer or something. And so Herod wanted to see Jesus do some miracle. Then in verse 9, he questioned him at some length, and he made no answer. And the chief priest and the scribe stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And they array, and, and then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. Because before that, they'd been in enmity with each other. You know, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but um, there's a little polarization going on in our country. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? You, you, you want to bring two people on opposite ends of the perspectum together? Just drop Jesus' name in the room, and you will find that they will align in their hatred toward Jesus. That's one way to bring unity, is to just get everybody hating Jesus. And watch out, that's probably the next chapter of American history. And if you name the name of Jesus, those political polls are going to line around you. And that's exactly what happened here in the story. Now let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod was an awesome guy. Let me tell you about this guy. He stole his half-brother's wife. His half-brother's wife was actually his niece. So he's in a relationship with, that's adulterous and incestuous. This wife, his niece, initiates the killing of Jesus' cousin John the Baptist and asks for his head on a platter. So that's his wife. Maybe the only person worse than Herod was his wife. And so here, here's this guy's family. It's filled with adultery, divorce, incest, child abuse, and murder. Welcome to Herod's family. Now, Herod was a bad dude. But even Herod didn't find anything wrong with Jesus. And yet he sends him back to Pilate. Verse 13, the story picks up. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the, and the rulers and the people and said to him, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I therefore will punish him and release him. Pilate proclaims Jesus innocent three different times. But Jesus is on trial in front of us. Listen, do you know who you are in the story? Do you find yourself in the story? 
you and I are Pilate. You say, I'm not a king. Well, yeah, kind of, sort of, we are. There's a throne in our heart. We have our little kingdom, our opinions, our influence, our family, our way of thinking. And any perceived threat to our kingdom is something that so often we fight over and we defend. And so here comes Jesus, and we have to decide, is Jesus king of my life? That's the question that Pilate asked him. Are you the king? And he's asking that same question today. Do you believe Jesus is king? Not just that he's the king of the Jews, but he's the king of you. What that means is this. Will you allow Jesus to have sovereign rule over your life? King Trent and King Jesus cannot sit on the same throne. When King Trent chooses to humble himself and surrender his kingdom to King Jesus, it reorients everything. It means now I love him, I serve him, and I obey him in a way that I relinquish control. I relinquish my right to do as I please, and I align myself under Jesus with grateful obedience for the fact that he would invite me into his kingdom at all. What is your verdict? Is King Jesus the king of me? And by the way, notice Pilate. He thought Jesus was a great guy. He, he could find no fault in him. He, he thought he was innocent. And yet he was not interested in surrendering his kingdom to Jesus. Listen, you cannot give passive approval to Jesus and expect everything to be okay with Jesus. He wants submission. He wants lordship. He wants your allegiance. What is your verdict? Here's the third thing. Let's look at Jesus on trial before a guilty criminal. All right, let's look in our Bibles. Have you been looking in your Bible? Got your Bible open? Look at verse 17. You found verse 17? Is, is anybody having trouble finding verse 17 in your Bible? Raise your hand if you're having trouble finding verse 17. It's just right after 16. It's right before 18. If you're having trouble locating it there. Anybody? Did somebody steal verse 17 out of your Bible? How many raise your hand if somebody stole verse 17 out of your Bible? They're like, wait a minute, what is going on? Somebody edited my Bible, chopped that out. What's, what am I missing here, right? right? Okay, so here's what happened. Don't freak out, don't freak out, okay? So the earliest and the best ancient manuscripts of what Luke actually wrote don't include this little phrase, which you can find in your footnote. It just simply says this, now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. You say, well, why isn't that in there? Listen, all that is, you just have to flip over to, um, to Matthew. I'll read you what came between verse 16 and verse 18 because it's just what Matthew recorded for us actually happened between verse 16 and verse 18. This is what it says in Matthew 27, 15. He says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for them, for the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? 
So that's what happened between 16 and 17. In verse 18, we pick up the story and it says, But they all cried out together, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Verse 22, a third time they said to him, Why? What has he done? I have found no fault and no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they ask, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. You know the story of Barabbas? We don't know a lot about Barabbas, just what we've read here in Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. That means that his chief goal was to overthrow the Roman government. He was the opposite of a pacifist. He was a militant. He was a revolutionary. He was a rebel. And in his mind, anybody that got in, got in his way was collateral damage. This is the guy that's throwing bricks through the windows. And this is the guy that's burning down the city in order to protest the unjust government of Rome that's pressing in on the rights of God's people. That's Barabbas. By the way, don't be Barabbas. Don't, you don't, you just don't, don't be that guy, okay? But in other ways, you need to understand every person in this room is Barabbas. Here's an interesting fact about Barabbas. Do you know what the name Barabbas means? It means the son of a father. It's a pretty generic name. But when Pilate brings Barabbas up, he's essentially saying this. Do you want me to release the son of a father in Barabbas? Or do you want me to release Jesus who claims to be the son of Father God? You have two claims before you. You're the juror. Which Barabbas are you going to choose? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God, worthy of your worship, worthy of your surrender, or do you just want to remain a guilty criminal? Do you understand that Barabbas is the greatest portrait of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in the Scripture? I mean, do you get in your mind's eye the scene that's being acted out here? We, we read in the story that Pilate's very prominent. We kind of picture him. Maybe you've even seen movies or, or a play or something. You see Pilate kind of in all of his pomp and circumstance up on the balcony of his palace. And the crowd of people are gathering around. And, and here he brings out Jesus. And Pilate asks, who do you want me to release to you? Jesus or Barabbas? And what did the crowd say? What was it? Give me a little audience participation here. What did they say? 
Barabbas. All right, can we just do this? Could I just for a few minutes pretend to be Pilate? I've always wanted to pretend to be that. And I want you to pretend to be the angry mob. Can you do that? All in, all in, some of you have been an angry mob lately. I understand. This is your opportunity to get it all out, okay? So here we go. I'm Pilate. You be Barabbas. I mean, you be the angry mob. Here we go. Are you ready? Who would you have released to, to you today? All right, that was about a two on a scale of a 10. I'm going to turn the volume up just a little. You need to be a little more angry, a little more violent. Here we go. You ready? Whom would you have me release to you today? And then the next question Pilate would ask would be this. Well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the answer is? All right, I'm going to turn that up just a little bit. All right, now listen. When we picture all of that taking place in our minds, for some reason we have imagined Pilate standing here, Jesus on one side, and Barabbas standing there on the balcony with him. But the Bible doesn't say that. We don't actually know where Barabbas is at this point. We just know there was this guy named Barabbas. Now remember, this was taking place early in the morning when the sun came up. This could have been 6 a.m. What are you usually doing at 6 a.m.? In your prison cell, you're sleeping, right? And leave me alone. Do not wake me up. And then for some reason, somebody calls your name and wakes you up. So imagine that Barabbas is asleep in his prison cell. We don't exactly know where that was, but it would have been in the vicinity there of the, the court in the, the, in the area of Jerusalem there somewhere. So he is unaware of what is happening on Pilate's balcony. He's even unaware that there is this guy named Jesus. Now listen... He's in his prison cell. He can't hear the one statement of Pilate saying, whom would you have me release to you? But he can sure hear a crowd of angry people shouting his name. So imagine being Barabbas and Pilate says, whom would you have me release to you today? And you hear Barabbas. And then Pilate says, well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? So Pilate's in his cell, and the only thing he can hear is this, Barabbas! Barabbas! Crucify him! Crucify him! How, have you, how would you react if that's the first thing you heard when you woke up in the morning? Do you think that that might have created a little anxiety in Barabbas' heart? He's there in his cell. He's all alone. He's still mad and angry. still wants to overthrow the government. But maybe he wakes up and realizes, oh... Oh, oh, today is the day. Today is my final day. Today is the day that I get what I deserve. Today is the day that I pay for my crimes. I guess there's no way out of this. I can't try harder. I can't do better. All of the appeal process is over. They're coming to get me. And within a few hours, I will take my final breath. My heart will beat for the last time. And I will pay the penalty that I deserve. That must have been going on in his mind. Maybe a few minutes later, he began to hear the boots of a Roman soldier clapping on that cobblestone pathway to his cell. Maybe he began to hear the clanking of those keys to the jail cells on his belt. And that Roman guard shows up at his prison door and takes one of those keys and inserts it into the lock and turns it and then grabs those bars and pulls it back 
to the sound of that creaking door. Maybe Barabbas arises to meet this guard and says something like this. I guess I'm about to get what I deserve. And imagine that Roman guard looking at Barabbas and saying, what are you talking about? I am here to set you free. And Barabbas says, what, there's not going to be an execution today? Oh, there's going to be an execution. We, we, we built this cross for you. We, we prepared these nails for your hands. We, we, we had designed an incredibly cruel punishment for your crimes. But there's this guy named Jesus out there. And the cross that we had designed for you, he is going to die on your cross. His hands are going to be pierced with your nails. The penalty that you deserve is going to be paid by this guy named Jesus. Jesus is going to die in your place. You've heard it so often if you've come to Gospel City Church. What is the gospel? Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. And three days later, he rose to redeem all who will repent and believe. I am Barabbas. I am a guilty criminal who's broken the law of God. I deserve a just sentence. I deserve death. I deserve pain. I, in, I deserve to be separated from God forever in a place called hell. That is my sentence. I'm a prisoner to sin. I can't break the shackles of my sinful behavior with brutal religious activity or trying to power up over it with some kingdom control. The only way I get out of this alive is by agreeing that I am the guilty criminal and allowing Jesus to take my place on my cross for my sin. Does that produce in your heart a gratefulness for the opportunity to know him? Does it produce in your heart a love? Does it produce in your heart a trust to get off of your throne and to stop elevating every other thing that you think is important to you and surrender your life totally and completely to Jesus every day, in every moment, with every breath to worship him, to love him, to serve him? If you say that you have experienced that kind of transactional faith with Jesus and yet it has no transformative, motivating control over your life, you do not understand the gospel. You know, we don't have any record of what happened after this in, in terms of Barabbas. We don't know... If Barabbas just walked out of that jail cell and said, well, how convenient for me. Somebody died in my place. I can go back to my criminal behavior. If he did, he didn't understand what just happened. And if you do that, you don't understand what's happened in your place. Barabbas could have gone right back to his criminal activity. Or he could have made up his mind that something had been done for him in such a way 
that it radically transformed what he was going to live for. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're somebody that understands that as Jesus died in my place as a substitute for my sin, I hate the sin that hung him on the cross. And I love the Savior that hung there in my place. And it should produce in me worship. So I have a question for you as we close today. What is your verdict? Will you see yourself as someone that's bent toward brutal religion and yet you give all of that up and you receive Christ? Will you get off of the throne in your heart and surrender completely to the lordship and kingdom of Christ? Will you see yourself as that guilty criminal and yet receive grace, understanding that what he did on that cross was for you, not just for Barabbas, but Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know him? Are you trusting him? I want you to stand with me right now with heads bowed, eyes closed. And would you see yourself there in that prison alongside Barabbas? Let's bow our heads, close your eyes. Let this be a moment of worship for you as you respond to the truth that you've heard. If you're a follower of Christ, to be reminded daily of the price that was paid for sin ought to create a hatred for sin in our hearts. And if you're caught up in sin right now, would you come at the end of this service and talk to a pastor, allow us to pray for you, allow us to give you encouragement and your next step in following Christ. If you've never followed Christ, if you've never understood that religion could never save you, it just beats you up with commands to do better and try harder. You can come at the end of this service, talk to a pastor. We'd love to lead you into a personal relationship with Christ. Father God, thank you for Scripture that so clearly shows us what you've done on our behalf. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for enduring the pain that we so justly deserve. God, would you remind us of us, remind us every day that we can no longer go on in criminal activity in light of what you've done for us at the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.